Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with Anne Pettifer, a famous British economist, originally from South Africa, who has led things like debt jubilee in 2000, a prescient diagnosis of a forthcoming great financial crisis, and an author back in, I believe, 2007 and eight, of a proposal for what we now call the Green New Deal. We're here to look at the challenge that we all sense is not on, not on the horizon, it's right in front of us at this juncture. And her book from 2019, Verso Books, The Case for a Green New Deal, is an extraordinary exploration of the scope and the scale of what we must do to address this challenge for humankind. And thank you for joining me today. Pleasure. And uh, I, I really look forward to this. I, I've, how would I say, been invigorated in reading the book in preparation for this. I'm sure our audience will be as well when they read the book, but also when they hear your vision of where we go. But let's start with a simple question. What inspired you to write this book in this time window? Um, I think it was that, you know, I'd seen what had happened. You know, we, we wrote the original report back in 2007-8, um, and it was a battle to get that written because the battle between the environmentalists in our group and the economists in the macroeconomists in the group to kind of get ourselves to work together to produce the report. And then, as you say, uh, um, the, the report didn't go very far until AOC and the Justice Democrats picked it up. And then suddenly it was out there. But what I was seeing increasingly was that people were talking about the technocratic side of what kind of technology is, or do we need to save this, to solve this problem? Whereas what I wanted to argue was that actually we have to think about the economics, that we have to think about the economic system and it's linked to the ecosystem. And because so much of economics is expressed in terms that are beyond the comprehension of ordinary folk, if you like, you know, the thing that inspires me is to be able to talk to fellow activists about macroeconomics. And it's not rocket science is what I'm clear about, but the way it's often discussed and talked about is as if it were a kind of uh, you know, physics post-quantum theory kind of thing. So, um, uh, this is what I this is this is the inspiration is to share my understanding of macroeconomics with environmentalists and ecologists, with the people on the ground that are arguing for this change, so that they they can be empowered, if you like. And I, and I have to say that I've seen that in action before when we began the campaign Jubilee 2000, which was for the cancellation of the sovereign debts of 30 countries or so, people said to me, well, you know, people didn't understand what it was about, didn't understand the relationship between international creditors and debtors. 
sovereign debtors. But we found it wasn't really hard to explain. And once people got it, and they got sometimes the most complex of ideas, they acted. And so for me, that's my inspiration. People, once they understand something, are capable of it in the most extraordinary action and transformation. Mm-hmm. Well, I found it fascinating, obviously, in what we now call the ESG world, that you bridge from the technology of climate transformation to finance and the incentive structures. And I did uh, sense in your writing and in some of your references related to Carl Pogliani and others that uh, you think it's important that the, which you might call unbridled free market financial system be channeled in a constructive direction or, or structurally changed quite significantly. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about why you feel that and what you would do in that, in that realm? Gosh, Rob, so it takes us back to the nature of money, which I think is still really, really understood. And, and credit as a kind of spigot, uh, which we can turn on. And if we turn it on in a way uh, which is unregulated, uh, which is unmanaged, we can spew out enormous quantities of credit, which become debt. And if that credit is aimed at consumption, if it's aimed at, uh, I don't know, extraction uh, of, of fossil fuels, or it, it's aimed at increasing our ability to go shopping, then of course there are going to be greenhouse gas emissions uh, come from that. And so what I wanted to do is to draw the line between the spigot of credit creation and the price of that credit, which is the rate of interest essentially, and the relationship between that and finance, and then you know the build-up of, of debts, both sovereign and private and corporate debts, but ultimately the build-up of emissions. Um, and I, I always tell the story of, you know, my, my children leaving school and going to university and suddenly having thrust in their hands credit cards before they had any source of income. But simply because they were going to university, the banks were in there and giving them credit cards and, and inviting them to borrow and to spend without any income. And of course, what they wanted to spend it on wasn't uh, on more books for university, but on going on you know, foreign holidays in the university breaks. So, so it was this, it's this disconnect between the creation of credit and our ability to repay. And, and there are limits to our ability to repay. And there are ecological as well as economic limits to our ability to repay. And, and I think that's really the important point to make. Now, under today's free market, so-called free market, it's extraordinarily, it's extraordinary how, how dependent the free market now is on the state, and in particular on central banks. But the ideology of free markets is that there should be no management of the credit creation process that actually we should trust the, the invisible hand to allocate resources efficiently. Well, of course, it turns out that the invisible hand can't allocate resources efficiently. So there's much about um, the theory of, of, of money and finance, which is, is really flawed and which results in... So for me, the challenge is to help ecologists and environmentalists to understand those connections and not to think that you know economics belongs in a separate silo 
and for economists to understand that actually their theories are leading to the kind of unsustainable emissions that we have today. Mm-hmm. Well, like you mentioned, the credit, uh, we'll call an acceleration of credit, can increase the rate of pollution and carbon burning. The other dimension, which uh, economists often call externalities or public goods, is that when you're financing something and some of the benefit comes from protecting the common good through protecting the environment, that may not bear the financial return that a private transaction does. So you can do reckless things and be more creditworthy than if you're actually doing wholesome things. And it's really dependent upon, as you described, how you frame what the credit allocation process is, looks like. You mentioned things like, I often called the bailouts of 2008-9, the mother of all moral hazards, because it foments believing that you can be too big to fail. You can gain market share because nobody thinks you'll default, but smaller institutions will. And you can lend even more aggressively because somebody will clean it up for you. And so we have, that. that's just in that container. But when we meld this with climate, the nature of the social return versus the private return becomes another, uh, we might call front row consideration. Absolutely. And... Um... <clears throat> You know, I mean, it wasn't just the bailout of 2007-8. It was the bailout of March 2020. You know, the Fed bailed out the shadow banking system. And so, you know, capitalism has evolved, Rob. It's evolved beyond what we think of it as. You know, we used to think of it as the the production of commodities and the trade trade in commodities and goods and services. Well, now, capitalism has become something quite different. Because by, by allowing, you know, the credit creation process, the financial system to de- be detached, if you like, from regulatory oversight, in particular democratic regulatory oversight, we've allowed capitalism to, involve, to evolve into this thing, which it is now, where actually it is, is mainly concerned with, and, and Susan K. Sell is really good on this, uh, is, re- is not concerned with competition within countries, it's, com- it's concerned with competitiveness, global competitiveness, and, and global competitiveness, not in goods and services, but in intangibles, in things like, you know, um, intellectual property or, um, you know, or, and, and financial services. And, this is, and these are all rent-seeking activities. So and what's striking to me is that economists allow this to happen or agree with this and indeed are responsible for this particular framework that we have today. And and what it's resulting in is the failure of capitalism to create and produce new assets, essentially, but actually to feed off existing assets. So we see, you know, capital wanting to invest, for example, in London property or New York property or in and in old Victorian buildings in London, which have become extraordinarily valuable, and extracting rent from those old assets, rather than doing what we all thought entrepreneurial capitalism was about, which is to create new assets. And we need capitalism now to create the kind of assets we need to 
tackle the clim climate breakdown and biodiversity loss. Um, and capitalism is not fit for that anymore. So, th so the whole financialization and the whole domination of the of the economy by or by a, if you like by private authority, you know, with private players deciding on our futures instead of public authority. Um, you know, we're we're in a situation where all that capitalism wants to do is to effortlessly effortlessly extract rent from existing assets and not create new assets. So you know, you know, it's contradicting in it, it's contradictory in itself, if you like. Yeah, I I remember in my reading uh, of British economists, I remember a gentleman named Fred Hirsch. And he talked about positional goods. More recently, Adair Turner, when he was a senior fellow at INET, wrote a book called Between Debt and the Devil, where he underscored exactly the kind of things you're talking about, which is you have collateral-based lending for real estate exploding, and we have central banks and bailouts and everything to support that. And the myth was, as I, I think you alluded to, what we were really doing was creating capital formation for new assets, which we might call enhanced productivity. But what we were doing was taking old assets and revaluing them and creating wealth effects in what Fred Hirsch called positional goods. And uh, so is this system, if you will, producing the kind of outcomes that warrant the kind of guarantees that have been granted? And Adair was saying, I think in agreement with you, that there's quite a contradiction there. Absolutely. And, you know, the other contradiction, is, I, mean, I mean, for me, it may, be, may not be a contradiction, but the other challenge is that it's anti-democratic, essentially. So, so the state now become, as others have argued, a collateral factory. You know, the state is creating assets, i.e. debt, sovereign debt. And the private sector can't get enough of that, really. You know, and that's why we, we see, you know... Um, the prices of uh, of bonds rising, the yields falling as dramatically as they have done, and yet while the state is a collateral factory, you know it's simultaneously attacked for creating the debt which becomes so vi such vital collateral for the private finance sector. You know, I mean, while the private finance sector might value an asset like London property, there is nothing as safe. As 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 British debt, uh, as sovereign British debt, or or, or of course U.S. debt, um, for the uh, for, as for collateral for the purposes you rightly argue of uh, of obtaining additional wealth, and so these these contradictions within capitalism are extraordinary, and and it brings me back to you know to the old taxpayer. Frankly, I would if I was to build a movement now or try to. I'm too old, but. I would want to build a movement of taxpayers and call, the, call it the Taxpayers Alliance and say, we are demanding to know why, you know, you are using our assets, um, you know, the, the, the collateral created by the state and backed up by taxpayers, and the value of the collateral is entirely dependent on the fact that we pay our taxes every year into the Treasury, which gives the Treasury and the Federal Reserve the power that it has to create liquidity. Well, then what are the terms and condition, conditions of that? And there are no terms and conditions at the moment. You know, Wall Street can get bailed out by the Federal Reserve. Um, 
every time it messes up or every time there's a shock. And, and then the reason why Wall Street has consolidated itself, if you like, and expanded its borrowing since both 2007-9 and 2020, and, you know, the, the amount of wealth generated through the pandemic is quite extraordinary, is because it was able to draw on these, uh, these bailouts from the Federal Reserve, from the taxpayer, without terms and conditions. And, and I find that, I think that's what I want to wake up, um, for, you know, people to, because really it's, it's our taxes and our money and our hard work and the fact that we're employed and able to pay taxes that is actually upholding Wall Street, to put it very crudely. And yet Wall Street treats, treats the state with, with effectively with contempt, in my view. Yeah. Well, in, in the United States, there's a great deal of concern about the role of money in politics, where, in essence, what, what I call the commodification of social design and enforcement becomes uh, essentially where, you might say, a sector becomes the architect of how it's regulated and how it's subsidized. And the politicians need to, which you might call, heed their demands in order to get the war chest to get reelected. And uh, so these these are very uh, complicated things unless you naively separate the domain of politics from the economy as though they're mutually exclusive. But a political economy doesn't, doesn't look like that. And... Uh, I think let's let's go. You started writing a Green New Deal report. I remember uh, Jeff Tilley, who's a monetary economist that I've admired and I saw referred to in this book, was part of your group. And but what inspired you at that time? Was it concern about climate, or was it seeing this misallocation that the financial sector fostered? What, what was that first report about? Well, that first report was about the arguments we had with the environmentalists and, and the arguments over monetary theory and policy, which wasn't understood at all, um, you know. And, and I think Jeff Tiley is, really, is a really important inspiration and mentor for me. And what he taught me was about Keynes, essentially, and Keynes's understanding of the nature of the monetary system and the need to do to the monetary system what had to be done in the 1930s, which is to subordinate it to the interests of democracy, if you like, and to remove it from its role as master of the economy and instead to turn it back into being servant to the economy. But I think really what transformed my thinking was an understanding of Keynes and an understanding that Keynes is so fearfully misrepresented as being about tax and spend, as about being about fiscal policy, when really he was deeply uninterested in fiscal policy. But he was he was convinced that by managing monetary theory, monetary policy, it was possible to manage and the prosperity of the economy as a whole. And, and you know, Keynes is no lefty. I mean, he was just a traditional capitalist, if you like, and he understood that in order for capitalism to be sustainable, um, and he did have more than a vision than just that, of course, but he, but he understood that for that to happen, the monetary system had to be managed. And that took me, I mean, took me back to the whole question of the nature of money and the fact that today there's still massive misunderstanding. The very fact that the public authorities, Rob, 
tolerate cryptocurrencies and the fraud and the corruption and around around cryptocurrencies seems to me to be an expression of the fact that there is still confusion around the commodity theory of money as to the credit theory of money. And of course, Keynes was on the side of the credit theory of money. And I mean, he himself had to struggle with with those ideas at the beginning. But once he got it, you know, he then understood really, given that it's a social construct and not a commodity, money is something that has to be managed, or else we could just magic, magic it out of thin air. And we do magic it out of thin air. But that's a reason for us not behaving as if we were the... Um, Sorcerer's apprentice, you know, messing around with sorcerer's pail and pail and brush, uh, to quote Goethe's famous story, and um, you know, it is something that we we have to manage. But but Wall Street would rather we weren't managing it, and above all, would prefer for it not to be demo the system not to be democratically managed. So that, and and you know, that's it's that understanding of Keynes that I found. Um, has inspired me all the way through. And I struggle on a daily basis. I, I see how Keynes is misrepresented and, and abused, and, and in particularly also in terms of the history. And, and I hope you will have read the bit about 1919 and his, his ideas for the international system that came out oh, yeah. expressed at Versailles. Treaty of Versailles, yeah, exactly. Well, I, the other part of Keynes that, that is a building block to awareness is his PhD dissertation, the treatise on probability, was really about what we call ontological uncertainty, or some will call radical uncertainty, the unknown unknowns. And these systems, like the monetary system and the value of liquidity, was quite integrated with coping with unknown unknowns and how to, uh, which you might call, stabilize an anxious system that doesn't have a terminal point that everybody believes in. And so I thought he was very, very sophisticated in the way in which, uh, like, the whole body of his work worked from a different vision of what society was than what we call mechanical Keynesian macroeconomics that uh, my alma mater, MIT, and other places... Uh, emphasized in the years following. Yeah, I, Rob, I'm very struck by this uh, economist at the Fed. Is it Jeremy B. Rudd and his um, yes. his recent paper that's caused such a stir? And I have to say, um, who was, I said, when he was absolutely right, when he, he talked about the primary role of mainstream economics in our society is to provide an apologetics for a criminally oppressive, unsustainable, and unjust social order. I mean, coming out of the Fed, that was pretty wonderful. But in dealing with that, Adam Posen then argued that um, at, that you know we're at the level uh, macroeconomics is at the level he said of Galileo and Copernicus, and we're just still at the at the stage of uh, finding figuring out the basics of how. The universe, the, the financial universe works well, and I and I love Adam Posen. He's an old friend, but I think he's wrong on this because we're not at the stage of Galileo and Copernicus. Keynes took us to a far more advanced stage in you know in his work, but we've re 
you know, we've regressed from that. And I don't think that's accidental, Rob. You know, I have to say I'm something of a conspiracy theorist when it comes to this, because in my view, you know, Keynes was deliberately, and I think he was naive. I think there was, you know, quite a long, <laughs> he was quite, he, he didn't manage this terribly well. But I think he was naive in thinking that his friends in the city of London and indeed in the economics profession would eventually be persuaded of his arguments and wouldn't try to subvert and undermine them. But they actively did so even before he died. So, you know, they were actively undermining Bretton Woods even as he left um, New Hampshire. So, so I, um, you know, I, but I, what I want to argue is that actually if we, if we could restore an understanding of Keynes' monetary theory and policies, we'd go a long way to creating the kind of framework, economic framework that we need to tackle the big crises of our day, which is, of course, climate breakdown. Yeah, well, there are a lot of uh, elements. I, I studied a lot of the students of Keynes, and one in particular, Laurie Tarsish, came to the United States and wrote a book about Keynesian, like a textbook of Keynesian theory, and was punished by elites, particularly, uh, I think it was William Buckley at the uh, Yale University, kind of put out a call to trustees and boards all over that this man was a heretic and this book had to be stopped. And after that, in what I would call in and around the McCarthyite era, People were much more cautious and much more mechanical and abstract in what they would represent in the United States and, and perhaps in the entire Anglo-Saxon world. But this uh, group now that they call the post-Keynesians, many of whom I believe were educated at Cambridge, England, uh, and many are in Italy and parts of the United States, uh, some of whom have emphasized what we might explore, modern monetary theory, which I think relates to your proposals. Uh, there's, there's a great deal of um, skepticism that Rudd really put out hard. And, and without that footnote about why at the beginning, he really he issued a very, very bold challenge that I think we should all listen to. I absolutely so, uh, agree with that, yeah. Yeah, Neil Irwin just wrote this up in the New York Times this last week. And, uh, I noticed uh, that. I uh, noticed they left out his, uh, his footnote. You know, they, they, they yes. <laughs> inflation expectations, but they left out the powerful footnote. But I think, um, so, Rob, it was really difficult. You know, I, I mean, I studied Samuelson at university, and I found it, even in, in the South African context, really incomprehensible in relation to the real world that I lived in. Um, and I think for many economists, they're having to go back to square one and finding that very, very difficult, really, because they've been trained to think so differently. But, you know, I'm hopeful people learn, people can change. Um, and, we, you know, the Jeremy B. Rudds can turn up. So, uh, <laughs> and, you know, there are an awful lot of people out there that know there's something wrong seriously wrong. It just takes some courage to come out and say it. So, um, but I, I, you know, I'm really convinced that 
we need to 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 revive the real Keynes and the real Keynes. And, and I, I just have to say also, Rob, I, I'm very skeptical about MMT. I'm not really a great fan of modern monetary theory because I, precisely because its emphasis so entirely on fiscal policy, really, whereas actually, you know, um, and and it, and there's this assumption that actually, and I, and I I I think often they're misrepresented, and and that's unfair. But the impression given is that governments can print money ad infinitum, and I don't think that is possible. I think it's true that governments have in, and, and central banks have enormous powers to create liquidity and to, to spend, but there are limits, and as I say, they're both economic and ecological to that ability. And I think MMT just gives the impression that you know they can we can print money, and I am deeply against that. For me, every every time a government issues a bond, that is an obligation, and that obligation has to be met. So you know, and, and but it's part of this process of putting all the emphasis on fiscal policy, all the emphasis on tax and spend, and no emphasis at all, emphasis at all on monetary theory and policy. And that's bizarre. And and for me, that's the mission is to try and rebalance that. Yes. Well, you talked about being what you might call skeptical about vested interests and. Uh, I remember there's a poet who goes by the name NQ, in question, and he has a poem, I believe the title of which is Evidence, and, it, and one of the verses in the poem is, people will always find evidence to affirm what they choose to believe. In other words, they reverse the causality. The evidence doesn't inspire what you believe you are choosing selectively the evidence to reaffirm your priors. And I, I, I worry about that, particularly in this realm of monetary theory, that uh, we haven't been as uh, open-minded or as curious about the adverse side effects of the system that we unleashed, really, in the, I guess, in the beginning of the Reagan-Thatcher period, uh, it, it accelerated quite markedly. markedly. I, um, I actually always wanted to go back to Nixon, Rob, in 1971. And I've just read uh, Jeffrey Garton, I think his name is, book on Three Days at Camp David. And it's absolutely fascinating. And I, I was asked to write a piece for Boston Review not long ago. And in it, I, men I mentioned um, 1971 and the Nixon shock. And they came back to me, you know, in conversation and said, gosh, we hadn't thought of it in terms of the international in framework and architecture. We thought about it in terms of controls over wages and prices. And I, I thought, just how, to come back to your point about how we look for the evidence for priors, and I'm just as guilty as anybody else. I mean, I hadn't really taken much notice of the issue of, uh, of wage and wage and price controls in the United States in 1971, and and the fact that this was a major concession by Nixon to the Democrats. I was overwhelmingly concerned with the Nixon shock and the fact that it was a it was Nixon single-handedly, single-handedly, and without consultation with his colleagues internationally, dismantling Bretton Woods. And without anything to replace it with, you know. I mean, as Michael Hudson always explains, the replacement of the gold standard was became the US debt standard, basically, the Treasury bill standard, you know. 
But um, it, is a, it is a fascinating tale, and it's fascinating to me that the Nixon shock, it, it was first drawn to my um, attention by the chief economist at, uh, at UNCTAD, uh, Yilmaz Akuz, a wonderful economist. Mm -hmm. back, oh, yeah. Yeah, back in the 80s and the 90s, he... He, he talked about the Nixon shock, and I'd never heard of the Nixon shock. And we started talking about it, but I noticed nobody else talked about it. And yet it was transformational of the whole international system. Um, but, and you know, and while I often look at 1933 and Roosevelt, and what Roosevelt did overnight, and Rochway's history of this is really superb, uh, to, um, to, to transform the gold standard and begin dismantling the gold standard. But one has to look at what Nixon did in 1971 to understand actually the, the ability to transform the international financial system is, he demonstrated you could do it, you can do it overnight, and he did it overnight. So, you know, with the political will of a Nixon, we could bring about another transformation. I think, you know, so while on the one hand it's, it's a story of despairing, a despairing story. On the other hand, it's an inspirational story. It shows that with courage and guts. And what's striking about Garton's um, account of three days at, at Camp David was that Nixon, for all his weaknesses, wanted big, bold ideas like, you know, recognizing China on the one hand and this. And, you know, where are the politicians with, with that kind of courage and with that kind of vision for something big and bold today yes let's we've been i i've really enjoyed this exploration of the financial system and the how do i say the ways it will potentially be an ally in the transformation that we need related to climate but let let's talk about your vision of where do we go so that my grandchildren and children feel safe and feel like they're in a coherent world, and and yours too. <laughs> yeah. So in the book, I um, I I try to um, I, I basically echo the the, the words of uh, the work of Herman Daly um, in, in calling for a steady state economy, for a recognition, you know, of the second law of thermodynamics that every time we burn fossil fuels, it doesn't evaporate and go away. It just becomes something else. Um, so, you know, the, it, the vision is for a steady state economy. And I think that's going to mean uh, an economy where we're going to have lower levels of consumption. Um, we're going to probably be less mobile in the sense of, you know, we're going to have to uh, be a more... Um, it, have much simpler lifestyles. But while those lifestyles might be simpler uh, and might be more labor intensive, we're going to have to substitute, if you like, uh, carb uh, labor for carbon. We're going to have to get out of our cars and perhaps cycle around or find other ways of moving around which are not so damaging. Um, while that might feel like, um, might, might feel risky, in fact, it could actually lead to something, to a very rich and um, a life of abundance, in my view. And, and I think we learned some of this through the pandemic. I don't know about you, Rob, but where I live, which is a deeply conservative rural part of Britain, 
I was just so overwhelmed by the sense of community, the way in which people came together, you know, the idea of working collectively to manage the situation. Uh, you know, we're supposed to be so individuated, such individuals caring only for number one. It turned out, well, actually, we're not like that. You know, we have the extraordinarily rare uh, for for our species, for for the world species, human qualities of empathy and compassion, and of collective action. No other species can do those things. And no other species has that level of empathy of compassion and of ability to work collectively. And the pandemic showed, brought out those, hum, those tremendous human qualities. And I think those will be extraordinarily enriching. We've seen the, the, the effect of it as well as, of course, the fact that we engaged with nature far more. You know, we stopped and looked around at what's, you know, the fact that the bees are in decline and, and that we need to grow wildflowers or whatever to, to help with that. And and that was better for our well-being and particularly our mental, that is much better for our mental well-being. So for me, it's that, that's what I look forward to is to a world where actually there's a much greater sense of community. Um, we're not shopping endlessly. Uh, we're not consuming endlessly. Um, we're not, as I, I, I work with a wonderful uh, economist, um, sociologist actually, who argues that in, in, in this world we will be satisfying our needs, but not our wants, not our desires. And our desires can rise exponentially, can grow exponentially, but our needs are limited. You know, we need, you know, shelter, we need... Uh, human love, if you like, we need security, we need education, we need good health, and so on. These are, these are finite, and addressing those needs would keep us very busy, but would make us all feel much, much better. Now, this might sound um, idealistic, but I, I, I think it's <clears throat> what we as human beings want and need, and uh, when we when we get it, we feel much better. And I think we're gradually learning. The pandemic has been a real lesson, I think, in that regard. Yes. Well, I, the joke I use in my podcast is the pandemic has been an unmasking of what we needed to learn. And uh, there's a gentleman, uh, a philosopher, who works in the realm between spirituality and science. He's from Hungary, named Irvin Laszlo. I made a podcast with him a few months ago. And he, he, he discusses it in the framework of uh, a tradition from India called the Akashic Field. And I, th I would say he insinuated that perhaps the higher spirits came to us with this pandemic because we needed a wake-up call to invigorate the kind of collective sensitivities that you're describing in order to meet the challenge of a sustainable uh, climate, how do you say, transformation and social transformation. And uh, I think we're seeing a lot related to concerns about inequality and racial animosity and a history of which you might call inaction that is now uh, being challenged by what they call anti-racism as opposed to pretending to be neutral while a hideous cloud hangs over us. Uh, so the, I think I, I'm quite inspired by what you say that 
however daunting it is with the pandemic and climate on the horizon, there may be good news embedded in how we are in the midst of a transformation yes. at this juncture. Absolutely. Um, I, I enjoyed, say- you had a, I, I was going to say, I enjoyed a comment that you cited Bobby Kennedy in your book in relation to the false notion that GDP was outstanding. And he said, it measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything, in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. And, and uh, I, I, I thought you, you, which you might call tickled the economics profession a little bit by uh, with that yeah, particular yeah. quote. No, absolutely. And the thing that I'm finding, um, uh, Rob, which is also encouraging, I, I have to, I'm, you know, I, I talk to people in the corporate sector a lot, and I find that in the corporate sector, people are facing reality much more seriously than the politicians are, you know, and that makes people, <clears throat> because they can see their supply lines endangered, they can see the risks facing their businesses. And the problem is really all they need is a framework within which to make the changes. Um, we all need that. We, you know, if, if we want to recycle and we all want to recycle and reuse, there's got to be a framework within which we can recycle. And it's not for individuals to create that. You know, society has to create that, government has to create that. But um, <clears throat> so I, you know, I, I'm impressed by the readiness of big corporations to begin thinking about how to change their systems to survive, essentially. But we need we need frameworks. And and you're right about pandemics. I've worked. I've I don't know if you've read Ian Golden's book, Professor Ian Golden. At, I know um, Ian quite well, but I haven't read yeah. his book. Yeah. And he, of course, predicted the pandemic in his. Uh, book called The Butterfly Defect, and argues that there are more pandemics in the pipeline, which there have to be as we continue to invade, if you like, nature's space and to come into conflict with creatures whose viruses are then transmitted. So so we've got to be ready. We've got to be prepared for this. Um, so, you know, onward and upward. And we know how to do it. Um, we just have to work for it. That's what I find interesting. I mentioned Adair Turner earlier. He does a lot of work on the Energy Transformation Commission. And they seem, as I read their reports, to think that this is an achievable goal. In other words, that it's not biting your fingernails because you can't imagine even how to do it. It's about doing it. And as you mentioned, the credit allocation system. And and I, I want to take us to a place because I have watched over the course of my lifetime, when I was reading when I was a young student, the people on the left favored government, the people on the right favored free market, simplistically. After a certain time, the people on the left did not trust in government. They thought that government, if you will, was captured. And so the question I'm asking you is, how do we restore the role of government, faith and trust in government expertise and so forth, to administer the credit allocation system, the energy transformation, and and you might call the guiding light 
towards the life we all want to live. I, I think that's a really big challenge, and I agree with you about the left's scepticism about government. But I think that's because we've also hollowed out the state. You know, I mean, when I was a young person, um, the state in Britain was responsible for health, and it was responsible for uh, telecommunications, and it was re responsible for public broadcasting and so on. And that's been chipped away and chipped away and chipped away. And so the state is now this hollowed out in thing, if you like, or politics is. Politicians used to be able to decide on the allocation of resources for health, on the allocation of resources for transport. Those have now largely, not the health is different here because we're very dedicated to the National Health Service, but our transport system has been privatized. And we find that, you know, when it goes wrong, nobody's responsible. Um, and that's part of the reason why there is a lack of trust in the state now. And so, in a sense, it has to be a question of re-empowering the state. In other words, we need more public authority over some of the essential services in the economy and less private authority. I think the, the, the balance is, you know, I too believe that private, the private sector has to thrive. But the, the balance is entirely wrong now. And because it's wrong, a lot on the left no longer trust government. And that's a, a great weakness. Uh, with that yeah, I've, I, I've been uh, involved in some conversations with people like Maud Barlow and others about the notion of water, the scarcity of water and, and what, how we govern water. And I know there's a lot of activism in South Africa right now over the way in which water is administered and, if you will, rationed to the point where in a pandemic people don't even have enough water to wash their hands. And uh, so how we build that trust in which I'll call the common good being administered by government, I think is essential part of this revitalization because you can, you can put things on a whiteboard, but can you implement them? in the rough and tumble of political economy, I think it's an open question. And... Still, we, we have to begin with ideas and with understanding. Oh, yeah. And what once we have those, you know, and I go back, if I may, Rob, to end this conversation, I think, to the story of Jubilee 2000. I'll never forget, Gordon Brown was chancellor and a treasury official came to me and said, look, Gordon has had to hire people to manage the correspondence that's come in around this question of sovereign debt. You know, we never had a department <laughs> that worried about this very much, and suddenly we have. He said, but I don't understand what's going on, Anne. He says, I get letters from women writing on pink paper with little rosebuds in the corner saying, dear sir, I understand that you have negotiated debt relief for Uganda, but that in determining the amount of relief uh, demanded, you've chosen a cutoff date, which is entirely irrational. And he turned to me and he said, who on earth explained to this woman writing to me from her kitchen table about the cutoff date for determining uh, the level of debt relief for Uganda? <clears throat> and I said, well, we explain. It's not rocket science, you know, but that woman once she understood, once she understood that there was something terribly wrong here, took action and challenged the, the you know, authorities 
And, and a massive change took place. You know, $100 billion of debt was written off. So that has taught me that it is possible. It is really possible to change. Yes. Well, you uh, mentioned, despite his shortcomings, a certain courage that is embodied in Richard Nixon. He looked for big change. And there is, I will say, an analogy. My guest on this podcast is someone who sits astride an economics profession, a political system, and she has the courage, meaning you have the courage, to, to paint the pictures of what a North Star looks like and what the rocket ship is that gets us there. And you advocate for it and you're unyielding and you're an excellent example. My Young Scholars Initiative should envision, given the challenges on the horizon, what kind of role model for what they want to be. And I think you're an excellent one. Gosh, Rob, that's, that's ever so generous. Thank you very much. Wow. Well, I think you've, you've inspired that. You've inspired that through the years when I've seen your work. And as you know, I had a lot of training in finance and so forth and watching how you unraveled all kinds of things and bring them to the practical and why it's not just playing with puzzles. It's playing with important issues. It's what questions you choose and then how you approach the challenge that I have grown to admire. So uh, I want to thank you for being with me today. And uh, I think uh, we'll have to probably uh, wait a couple of months or so, but uh, let's keep an eye out and do another episode. You know, re Call me when, a when another vision <laughs> is, uh, how did I say, ready for my audience and for our young scholars, because I'm sure you'll come up with more and more and more. And uh, I applaud your work. Please stay at it. <laughs> thank you so much, Rob. That's really generous and kind. Well, and thank you for today. Thank you. We'll talk again soon. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing